This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? If you're familiar with St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, the next few chapters of Genesis will be extremely familiar to you. This is because St. Paul almost exclusively sources his arguments on the content of these chapters. In essence, the Pauline New Testament is simply reinforcing the correct reading of the Old Testament against the abuses of the religious establishment of Jerusalem in Paul's time. You see, in first century Judea, the center of religious life was the Herodian Temple. And around the temple you had two major classes of Jewish society. The Sadducees were the extremely wealthy and Hellenistic priestly class, and the Pharisees were anti-Hellenist opponents of that priestly class, and devoted their lives to piety and the study of scripture. This was Paul's background. He was a Pharisee, and like all Pharisees, he knew scripture very well. Zealous for the traditions of their forefathers and of Judean identity, the Pharisees grew to weigh their righteousness around the technical following of the Mosaic Law, And not only that, they were set to impose that law onto Gentile converts into the faith. Paul, fleeing from this trap, condemned both Judaism and Hellenism and argues in Galatians that Abram was considered righteous by God independent of the Mosaic law. So how was Abram deemed righteous? Let's hear the story that Paul heard and find out for ourselves. The painful truth of scripture is that it only upholds our traditions when we force it to do so. But when we read it for what it is, it tears those traditions down. And when I say that Paul tears down Judaism, I'm not making a slight against modern Judaism. This is Judaism of the first century, and it can function as any religion, including and especially Christianity. This is difficult because we love the traditions of our forefathers, but scripture doesn't give a damn. Let us be attentive. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Okay, so already here we have a few major translation problems that we need to address. Uh, First of all, the word of the Lord we already know as Debar. We've talked about this before. But in this section of scripture, it's actually really helpful because the preceding statement says after these things, right? So you catch that. That word things in Hebrew is debarim. Now, you know, there's other ways to translate that. You could just translate it as words, as some translations do. In fact, even the the Septuagint 
um, uses rimata, which is uh, uh, the Greek uh, word for for word translating the Hebrew debar. Um, but uh, the it, it you you can translate it as thing, and that's the point. Um, maybe a better translation would be uh, after these matters, right? Because that's what debar really is. It's a physical matter, and so that's kind of my point here. Dabar doesn't only mean a word, it can also mean a thing, physical matter. And therein lies the problem with the Hellenistic Logos. Now, I'm not talking about the Logos of the New Testament, which is a translation of Dabar, but the Logos of Hellenistic philosophy and its child, Christian theology. That Logos is immaterial. It's in Plato's realm of the forms. It's lofty and transcendent and philosophical. Those are Greek concepts, friends. The scriptures, on the other hand, are Semitic and thus practical. So the Dabar Yahweh is not a disembodied word, but a physical thing. And that physical thing is the written text itself. Again, it's practical. There are no planes of existence or anything transcendent going on here. Abram received a word from Yahweh, period. And the whole bit about the word coming to Abram is also a pretty bad translation. The original Hebrew simply has the verb hayah, which literally just means that it was. So a better rendering of this would be to say that the word of the Lord was to or unto Abram, since that preposition el uh, means to or towards something. Now, we can't fall into the trap, as I think a lot of these translations do, into giving the Dabar itself a personality as if it is a person. No, it's not a person. The Dabar, Yahweh, comes from Yahweh himself, and he is speaking that word to Abram as he does the prophets. Right. But I do want to acknowledge the particularity of the phrase. Uh, there's a tendency in biblical scholarship, both past and present, to gloss over textual differences, uh, whether it be a character's title, some sort of phraseology, or other grammatical thing. For instance, this is the very foundation of the documentary hypothesis, this approach. People have assumed that since God has a variety of different names associated with him in the Old Testament, that there must have been different authors writing different verses of the story, or perhaps there were two different accounts of the same story that were later harmonized by a redactor, and that's why you have these nuances. Let's just silly. Let's look at the Bible like it's a functioning literature, which is exactly how it presents itself. And then we'll be free of all the unnecessary headaches. We don't have to worry about it. But back to my main point. Other passages will simply say, and Yahweh said, or and Yahweh spoke, or Vayomer uh, Elohim, and God said. But there is, like I said, a particularity to this phrase that we have here several times in this chapter, as it is rendered literally, and the word of Yahweh was unto Abram, saying. So I can understand people's desire to inflate the importance of noticing this uniqueness, you know, with ideas of personage or Christology. Uh, but as we must always do when we approach scripture, we have to inquire about what the text itself is saying. And now, since we have clarified what the phrase is not doing, let's wait. And we'll see. We'll see what it's all about. Uh, because like with all the other literary devices of Genesis so far, 
we will come to learn the significance of this phrase as we are told it in the story. I also want to touch on the chazah, the vision by which Abram receives the word. Now, this chazah has to do with sight. So Abram sees this word. Again, we have to stress time and time again that this word is a practical, invisible thing. In other words, it's not abstract, just like how the scriptural God is not abstract. We see how this functions in the prophetic literature, particularly when describing the false visions of the false prophets. Here, Jeremiah 14, 14. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. So there it is. That's exactly what we've been talking about. The vision that Abram is receiving is strictly from God and not something he imagined in his head. It's literally God gave him a word as in God gave him a scroll in the same way that we see it in uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, right? That is the function. We like to think of this very uh, ethereally, you know, if we if we're theologians, we, we see uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ uh, at this moment. Or we might think of, uh, you know, just this very spiritual, you know, Abram heard the, the word of the Lord uh, in his ears. But no, it's very physical. It's very practical, right? We have to tear down this idea that uh, something metaphysical is going on here when that's uh, not the case. Right. It's the exact opposite of what's going on. And that's that idea that this is happening in a metaphysical way is the way of philosophy. And scripture is inherently anti-philosophical. And that's exactly what's being condemned in these prophetic books. It bears repeating over and over again. The mind causes deceit. So you can't rely on it scripturally, if you're scriptural, especially if you feel like you're getting messages from God, as as a lot of people throughout history have done, you know, people who are self-proclaimed prophets, right? It's a delusion. When God gives someone a message, it's a big deal, and it's particular to scripture, because once again, the scripture is closed, right? It's closed. Everything that needed to be said has been said already, and it's our job as slaves to listen over and over again. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I want to quickly point out that in this chapter, we are getting our first use of the word Adonai, which many of you might be familiar with, as it is often used as a placeholder by modern Jews for the divine name, yod heh vav or Yahweh. This is extremely important for us to notice. 
instead of Elohim, which is how the text has referred to God thus far, right? Yahweh Elohim, or just Elohim, or just Yahweh. The first time we hear this new title is when it comes from the mouth of Abram. This word choice is marking a change in the way Abram views God. How do I know this? Well, because if you were a slave, Adonai is what you would call your master. It literally means master or owner or our much more historically neutral English term, Lord, with a lowercase l. That's what's going on here. Abram is beginning to understand this relationship, that despite Abram's riches and success in battle, everything has only gone well for him because this God, Yahweh, has allowed it to be so. And Abram addresses him accordingly, my master, Yahweh. How beautiful is that? Abram isn't concerned about theology or the philosophical implications of the divine planes of reality and how it all is divided up and how humans contribute. He doesn't care. He understands this is a relationship. My life is going okay. I am allowed to breathe. I just went to war. And the only reason I'm still alive is because of this God. So he calls him master because that is the only thing that makes sense, is that this God is superior above all things. And just by the power of his will, his slaves will prosper. That's the story that we are being told. Here also, we have an interesting moment where God tells Abram not to be afraid because he is his defender, his shield. That word in Hebrew, magen, derives from the word ganan, which means to cover or to defend. Again, this is extremely important because the scriptural proposition is one of complete submission to God, not relying on anything else to save you or protect you. Uh, this verse goes hand in hand with that proposition. Uh, this is something that you see repeated quite a bit in the Psalms, right? The, the Lord is my shield, the Lord is my refuge. It's that same kind of thing. God then says that Abram's reward will be very great. That word in Hebrew is sakar, and it essentially refers to a payment, a, a sum of money received after doing hired work. We will see eventually that this sakar is none other than the yorash, the inheritance that God will promise to Abram's offspring. Abram, however, does not immediately respond with trust, but instantly expresses his consternation. He complains that God has not given him an heir and that his heir will end up being someone of his household by the name of Eleazar of Damascus. Now, this is interesting. Eleazar in Hebrew means my God is help, or perhaps God is my help. That seems like a bit of a strange inclusion by the authors. They, they didn't need to mention this servant by name, but they did anyways. I'm not going to speculate too much on what this may mean, but I think the text is worth looking into, and to do that, we need to consult the rest of Scripture. Remember that Scripture is a totality, after all. The first thing that comes to mind is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the book of Luke. Now, that may seem unrelated at the onset, but it's worth it to note that Lazarus is the Greek rendering of Eleazar. 
and we get a specific mention of Lazarus being in the bosom of Abraham. Now, the context for this parable in Luke is to highlight the self-righteousness of the rich man who represents the Jewish religious elite uh, who were rich in the law, and Lazarus represents the faith of the Gentile or perhaps the Jewish outsider who did not know the law yet still practiced the precepts of God in humility, even if it was unknowingly so. The rich man disregarded Lazarus just as Abram, also a rich man in many ways in this story, disregards Eleazar, and yet in the Lazarus parable, an Eleazar figure still ends up being in the bosom of Abraham. It's interesting. Not only that, Abram here is disregarding God's help, whether he realizes it or not, and later he disregards God's promise by laughing at that promise. This proposed son that God is speaking of will be marked by Abram's mocking of that promise. So this disregard of Eleazar could be related as a precursor to that event. And it really does seem like in some way that Luke is referring back to this story in Genesis 15 as he tells the story of the Lazarus parable, especially since this parable is the only one attributed to Jesus which features a proper name. And given how important Genesis 15 is for the New Testament school alone, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. It makes this interaction somewhat humorous because while God does go along with Abram's premise, despite his mistrust, by saying that Eleazar will not be his heir, it is through God's appointed heir to Abram that Gentiles such as Eleazar will eventually be eligible for adoption into the future Abrahamic family bosom. After all, God renames Abram Abraham because he will be a father of a multitude of nations. It's a way of humbling Abraham into sharing all of humanity into his lineage rather than merely his own flesh and blood descendants. And that the rich man in the parable displays the same behavior that Abram is displaying in this passage is really something as well. It shows that Abram wasn't really any different than the quote-unquote bad guys of Scripture. It's a smack in the face to our sensibilities, which so desperately want us to latch on to a hero for us to imitate. But in Scripture, such a figure is seldom to be found. And that's by design. Scripture is a revealing instruction. That's what Torah means, ultimately. We see a mirror into our own iniquity, and the only thing that can save us is God's mercy. I want to also touch on the important word aman, which is the Hebrew word for faith. Now, this is a Hebrew word we all should know because it is from aman where we get the word amen, right? So aman simply means to trust or even to verify a truth. Amen, on the other hand, is a verbal pronouncement of that trust. All of us say amen after we pray, but the best way to say amen is to actually change our behavior, right? That's the real amen. And remember our overall theme this episode. The original Hebrew is very practical in its meaning, so the aman is literally a practical type of trust that something is true. It's not a belief, okay? It's much more solid than that. 
And I seriously mean that because the word Amon literally means to turn to the right. And most of us should know by now that right and left have symbolic meanings in the ancient mindset. To be on the right was to be in an honored place, and to be on the left was to be in the exact opposite position. There is a firmness to be on the right. It reminds me of the common saying, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. And while, yes, this is just a figure of speech, it applies very well to the practicality of the scriptural Hebrew. There's nothing abstract or thoughty about this. It's a trust in a precept, and because that precept requires the action of the trustee, that trust can only mean something when actually carried out in a practical manner. And that's exactly what we see transpire in the saga of Abraham, particularly in Genesis 22. And that's the whole picture. It's a mistake to believe that Abram's belief in God's words was entirely what made him worthy. That's entirely a platonic way of thinking. Abram's Amon is introduced in this chapter, but not fully expressed until Genesis 22. It's like any other relationship. If you have a romantic partner of some kind, trust is absolutely critical to the health of that relationship. But the trust that binds the relationship together is not a mere intellectual agreement of the trust, nor is it simply telling your partner that you trust them. You have to actually express your trust through your actions. And that's exactly how scriptural faith works. You cannot have faith in God if you do not do what he commands of you. We have watered down faith into just intellectually believing that an entity exists. Well, big whoop, you know, what does that do? It doesn't do us any good. And it's the exact opposite of what scripture is teaching us. So please let us seriously take that into account. In verse seven, it says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, or across from each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites.
So while that was a longer passage, I think this is one of those sections that are best read as one unit because it just sequentially flows best in that way. Right off the bat, it's important to note that whenever we read possess as it relates to the land of promise, this is totally incorrect. It's disastrous. The original is yarash, which means to inherit. Right. In fact, if you look at the King James Version, Yarash is always translated as inherit. It wasn't until the 1950s that it started to be translated as possess, which was likely a political move following the advent of the modern state of Israel in 1948. That is the most disastrous thing a translation can do, but it's, it's all too common. The more we are aware of this, the better. You can't possess God's inheritance. It's a gift, just as you can't possess salvation. If you want more detail on the difference between possession and inheritance, I'll point you to our episode number nine, Yes, You Are Your Brother's Keeper, where we go very in-depth with those two things. So Abram then asks how he will know he will possess the land. And again, there's still mistrust with him, right? And the way God answers is quite brilliant. And this is important. Instead of just telling him point blank how it will be so, God foreshadows essentially the entire biblical epic to Abram. He tells him the story. (laughs) And that story is not sunshine and rainbows. We hear that a great and dreadful darkness fell over Abram before God told him the story. And we are given a glimpse of the Egyptian and Babylonian captivities. The most striking part of this is the fact that Abram will not see the promise. It's essentially to his descendants. There is no material reward for Abram except that of progeny. And that's an important point that's totally foreign to us in the modern day. In the ancient Near East, One continued after death, not through an eternal soul, but through progeny. Again, it's practical. It's right there in the final verses of Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they received perfection through their progeny. But that progeny was also God's gift and not something they possessed. And we'll see that very strongly with the birth of Isaac, who was conceived without Abram's involvement. Yeah, I think this is a very powerful section. The deep sleep falling upon Abram is and no doubt evocative of the sleep that fell upon Adam in Genesis 2. And the great terror of darkness falling upon Abram is evocative of death and the Choshek al of Genesis 1, that is the darkness upon the face of the deep. So after Abram prepares this covenantal sacrifice, he essentially dies and is reborn into the covenant. You know, I could be reaching here, I know the text could use more direct language to clarify that this is indeed what's happening, but at the same time, I don't think that this is thematically much of a a leap. In this culture, to make a covenant with someone, this ritual was common. 
The two parties would slaughter an animal and both would walk through it to signify the bond between them. There's no darkness falling upon anybody. Nobody's going to sleep. This is present in the Hebrew language itself. In Hebrew, you literally say karat barit, which is to cut a covenant. What's captivating in this passage is that it's totally dark. And like Blaise said, God is speaking to Abram, elaborating on the scriptural story to come. It's part of the covenant. And then bang, behold, in the darkness, there is a smoking fire. And Abram watches a flaming torch pass between the animal pieces. This fire, of course, is God. Abram was meant to participate in this cutting of covenant, but God makes him lie down, darkness falls upon him, and he awakes into the covenant to see God alone, Abar, passing through the animals to signify that Abram and his progeny will not keep the covenant, nor are they responsible for keeping the covenant, because God will uphold his covenant. And I'm not saying that God doesn't expect Abram and his progeny to uphold God's expectations. I'm just saying that what's happening in the story is evocative of the fact that they won't and that they don't have to because it is the faith that is counted to them as righteousness, right? What we heard earlier in this chapter. The people of promise will not keep the covenant, but they are saved. Righteousness is counted to them by their faith. For us, it is no different. Whether we call it faith in Jesus Christ, or faith in God, or faith in the scriptures, this faith is counted to us as righteousness, and it is this faith that is our trust that God will keep his word, which is that he will save us if we obey him, because our obedience is the mark of our trust. You cannot have one without the other. Let us always remember this, dear siblings. If there is ever a takeaway from any of our episodes, it should be this message. Have trust in God, not through a decision you make in your mind, but through a demonstration of faith, showing mercy to those around you to do them good. Then you shall be saved. Like I said last episode, you cannot raise one hand to trust God and withhold the other hand from your neighbor. If you do that, you are not doing anything. You are raising your hand, looking like a fool. That's the story. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next week, inshallah, where we hear of Abram once again forsaking his trust in God. Until then, peace be upon you all. Farewell. Alleluia.